the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. And I want to welcome you to another Monday edition of Lifeline. You are engaged in a two-hour dialogue or a conversation or a challenge or um, just maybe an opportunity for you to sit and learn, be affirmed, be corrected, be admonished, be strengthened in your faith with yours truly, Jesse Gistan, in the house, 5.06 p.m. on this gorgeous Monday evening. Let's see here. We are talking about March the 2nd. Time is moving. We are in our third month of the year 2020, and uh, the weather is perfect. The weather is great, and I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here with you. I hope and trust that you had a great weekend and that um, worship was something of a, uh, a wonderful, uh, truth-driven event for, uh, for, for your life. It was for me, too. Let me see here. What can we talk about today? First of all, um, there are local elections going on here in the Bay Area, and um, and if you're you're um, you're an individual that gets involved in local elections, we have a a dear sister that's running for the school board, Jonathan Cole. You guys, uh, we had a conversation with her a few weeks ago. And if you guys uh, recall, she's trying to get on the school board of education to just help. I guess enhance, uh, uh, strengthen, or um, or uh, correct some things that's going on, particularly in the Hayward School District. That's where she is uh, vying. And I think uh, voting is tomorrow, March 3rd, so you guys want to get out and vote. And uh, if you want to vote for Strengthening uh, Educational School Board of Hayward, uh, Jonavette Cole is, uh, is a sister that I I recommend a lot of integrity, a lot of character. You can find her on um, you can find her online. So you can look up Jonavette Cole and she will uh, you will see all the labors and works that she's been doing to uh, to uh, move education in the right way for our kids. There are a lot of things going on in our nation that you guys know are are breaking down on so many levels. I'll talk a little bit more about the kind of looming crisis in terms of identities, worldviews, um, uh, people's understanding of their own existence and, and a whole lot of um, a whole lot of bad uh, epistemology is framing the the understanding of a human existence and human relationships, government uh, and things of that nature. They're definitely not operating out of a biblical worldview, as you know. I was thinking about this concept of change, change, and probably what is causing many people's uh, eyebrows to rise up is how much our culture is changing. Um, When you just 
think about where we were some 30, 40, 50 years ago and where we are now. And, and what is it? What, what brings about these kind of dynamics where what were normative models of existence, normative models of identity, normative models of um of, uh, of of people's pursuit and careers and life expressions had a fundamentally universal um, uh, ideology behind them, if you will. There were what we would call universal laws that defined things in a very clear and concrete way. But over the last 50 years or 60 years, we have moved into what has largely been defined as a postmodern culture that has operated out of levels of uh, uh, relativism that have become so clearly impactfully uh, consequential in our society. Postmodernism, meaning that we reject all of the old views of of how the world is and what the world does and how we should function and and what constitutes right and wrong and what constitutes parameters for moral and ethical judgments. Uh, long ago, we could have a conversation around fundamentals like what does it mean to be a man or what does it mean to be a woman? Today, all of that is up in the air. It's all in a state of flux. And that's what I mean by the term change, change. When the older generation looks around and sees the way people behave and sees the way young people act. And I was talking with an older uh, older person somewhere up in their 80s and 90s a couple of weeks ago. Well, it wasn't even a couple of weeks ago. It was a week ago at a funeral service that I had to participate in. And the common uh, common deduction drawn by the older generation is that young people don't think the same as we do anymore about some of the basic assumptions that constitutes our perception of life. And they couldn't be any closer to the truth on that, uh, quite frankly. Change at the deep level of people's perceptions and people's aspirations and people's drives, uh, people's goals and people's objectives. Change has come in and rerouted and rearranged and redefined, if you will, uh, what people view themselves as and how people view the world. And they have even been able to take from a postmodern viewpoint a, a, a methodology of interpretation called deconstructionism. I'll talk more about that in a little bit and then place it on top of history. This deconstructionist model has been placed upon history and history now has been kind of dissembled and and analyzed and critiqued. And there have been massive uh, uh, if you real real uh, if you if you recognize it, there have been massive sort of modifications and rearrangements of the facts and emphases of history. And the question is, what for? Uh, why all this change? What is this change about? Is this change good? Is this change necessary? Um, is this change moving us in a direction of, as some would assert, an evolutionary trajectory by which we could do life better? All those questions are worthy of conversation and reflection and dialogue, analysis, even debate if you will, because we live in a world where you and I have to really think about who we are and what we're here for and why we um, are called upon to do things that are uh, considered virtuous and noble, uh, beneficial to our fellow man. And, and we might even have to think through eternity. 
Certainly those of us who live out a Christian worldview are called upon to think about life now and life to come. And so I raised the question, you know, what's going on with all of this change that's taking place in our world that has taken place, let's say, over the last 20 years and even over the last two administrations, I can say that there has been a massive uh, paradigm shift since the days of President Obama. Uh, in terms of uh, legislation ruling in the behalf of the hyper autonomy of individuals. This is called human rights or civil rights. And, and the whole idea is that individuals have to have a level of, uh, of civil and social rights that would find a way to protect their own unique definition of who they are. And when you've got a culture in flux like we do today, particularly around identity, and that's what I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about today, identity. When you have a community of men and women who cannot clearly and identify or articulate what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a man or a woman, now we have this sort of endless manifestation of individual identifying of oneself, and it can go on, logically speaking, ad infinitum, particularly if we don't have a definition of identity that is universal and fixed in terms of observable empirical facts relative to what constitutes a human being. This all is a consequence of a very profound sort of uh, critical theory method of reexamining everything that's going on in our world. Um, if you know anything about philosophy and you understand uh, the uh, prevailing fame and prevailing, uh, if you will, uh, sort of worship of Marxist uh, uh, philosophy of, 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 of history and of life, his, his view of uh, humanity, this, is, this would be uh, his critical theory concept, uh, and the whole argument of the battle between social elites and common people on the ground, <clears throat> Marxism is playing a major manifestation today in all of the changes that are going on in our world. Those changes, however, are not only being uh, forced into existence in all of these different modes of society that we exist in by a Marxist philosophy of critical theory, uh, that is, you know, we need to be challenging every fundamental institution. We need to be challenging every assumed set of norms. We need to be challenging every set of traditions and values that are foisted upon us without our approval. We need to be pushing back against all of the kinds of institutions that don't meet our standard of definition in terms of what social norms should be, what what people's rights should be, what well, how the world should operate. And so you guys have begun to see over the last 30, 40, 50 years, it's been going on longer, but it's moving at an accelerated way, a uh, accelerated rate in terms of the political forces that come together in our democratic society, working in opposition to them, to each other. That is Democrats and Republicans.
or liberals and conservatives, which are their fundamental ideologies that drive their uh, political expressions, Democrats and Republicans. When you watch how they operate and what kind of platforms they produce and what kind of arguments and, and assertions that they raise about what's wrong and what needs to change, what you see are some, some massive shifts in values, some massive shifts in what's right, some massive, massive shifts in what power brokers want to do for our society. Now, what's driving the political process that leads us from one set of norms to another set of norms that moves us to another set of norms? I've talked to you about for many, many years. I've talked to you about the Hegel Hegelian dialectical process. It's a methodology of perceiving how the world works on the part of Frederick Hegel. It is a process. The dialectical process was picked up again by by Marx, and he understood the necessity of battling oppositional views. Whether one holds a thesis of conservatism, it's essential that there be an opposite antithesis of liberalism that goes to war against conservatism in order to break down all of the conservative strands or conservative principles by which people would operate and either overthrow conservatism and replace it with liberal ideas or by a process of synthesis. I'll talk more about this because really the proxies, the method that goes on in our world is a method of hostilities leading to a a synthesis, a compromise by which a little bit of the original thesis and A significant amount of the antithesis comes together and creates a new synthesis or a new thesis. We're in the middle of that flux right now at enormously uh, implicatory levels, at the level of humanity, at the level of identity, at the level of what it means to be a man and a woman. Uh, at the level of its implications on the society, on the educational system, on our uh, work ethic and work life, on the level of politics. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name now, an openly professed homosexual that just uh, ended out of the race, who uh, is now voting, who is now casting his lot with uh, with Joe Biden. Uh, he had vowed that if he were to enter into the presidency, he would bring his gay lover in and it wouldn't be an issue of her or him becoming the first lady. It would be him becoming the first. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I forget the term, but he had a term already to replace what we would call first lady. Now, where does First Lady come in? First Lady comes in under the assumption that those who are put in positions of leadership should be men who are old enough to have demonstrated the capacity to not only leave businesses and do things within the civil jurisprudence of a society, but to lead a family, to raise a family, to have a wife and have children and demonstrate that they can raise children in a lawful, gracious manner. This is going all the way back to the beginning of our country. Every president that I can remember has always had a wife. He's always been old enough to be married and always been old enough to demonstrate uh, his understanding of the domestic uh, relationship that is at the foundation of human history. That's family. We never ever contemplated two men in the White House, one being uh, the alpha male and the other one being the beta male. We never, ever contemplated two women in the White House, one being the alpha woman, the other being the beta woman. We'd never contemplated it. But that's the change that you and I are dealing with today. 
That's where we are. And I want to talk about this, what I call a pseudo uh, new identity syndrome, a pseudo identity syndrome and the fundamental pillars that make up this pseudo identity syndrome. And you and I can talk about it. Of course, one triple eight, three, six, seven, five, three, two, nine, one triple eight, three, six, seven, five, three, two, nine. If we're not careful, there will be a point in time in which old school people who think in an old school way. If you don't understand the gap between old school and the new school and what defines and uh, determines and uh, motivates and drives this new change, you won't be able to have a conversation with those people. It will be too big of a generation gap for you to be any to be able to do anything effective in terms of reaching them because we're changing the whole framework of how you think and what you know, how you think and what you know. How you think and what you know. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. I'm going to pay some bills. When I come back, I'll continue our topic today. Understanding what has brought us to this place of change and what the Christian worldview is towards how it should interact with that particular change process for the purpose of bringing men and women to a saving knowledge of Christ. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host, Jesse Gistan. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back at the time 531 on this Monday edition of Lifeline, March 2nd, 2020. I uh, was talking about um, Pete Buttigieg. That's his name. Pete Buttigieg just uh, just abandoned uh, the race because I guess, you know, he wasn't getting any traction. And uh, some of the pundits were saying because he, he wasn't uh, liberal enough. Uh, for liberals, and uh, he he definitely you know didn't even begin to stir the black community, uh, and and people are kind of wondering what that was all about, and probably is largely because of his open gay status. And I was saying to you earlier, uh, he had stated very clearly that if he were to become president, that the term first lady would be changed, and here's the terminology, to first gentleman. Our first gentleman could be Pete Bittigig's husband. You see what I mean about the change that you and I are going through presently? Terms that were normally clearly identified with two specific concrete binary gender distinct people are now being employed arbitrarily. It doesn't matter what, what the gender is. And here's the word that I began to think through. Why is Pete uh, Bittigig wanting to call him uh, a, a first gentleman. And then I said, you know, well, we, we better we better look up what what gentleman means. And uh, the idea of a gentleman is a man of a good family, a good family. He's of good breeding or of social position. Uh, a gentleman is civilized. He's educated. He's sensitive. He's well mannered. Uh, these are some of the terms. And you can see how that can be very challenging when it comes to uh, where we are in our present context. And this can be even more challenging for us in a Christian worldview, because biblically, we would not be able to say that an individual who is engaging in practices that are clearly and explicitly contrary to God's word could be viewed as a gentleman. We know the term gentle. We know the term man. But if, in fact, what that means is a person of good family, of good breeding or a good social position, what what now does the term good mean? 
Uh, so you see what we're dealing with in our present day, ladies and gentlemen, a completely uh, wholesale deconstruction of norms and ideas and terms and phrases and concepts that are being redefined. And I was talking to you earlier about uh, Marxist critical theory uh, paradigm, our, our methodology, our framework for interpreting the world. Listen to this. Critical theory is a social theory oriented towards critiquing and changing society as a whole. Critical theory is a, is a social theory oriented towards critiquing. That's what goes on in your colleges. That's what goes on in your talking points upon uh, uh, among your pundits. That's what goes on in the realm of the intellectuals. And in fact, they were targeted. The Gramscian school of of of, of uh, socialism has has really permeated the whole world with a worldview of socialism that basically entrenches and controls and and shapes the whole narrative of our universities, so that our kids going into those universities are going to have a wholesale soft Marxist Gramscian socialist model of uh, education. And so critical theories aim to watch this dig beneath the surface of social life and uncover the assumptions that keep human beings from a full and true understanding of how the world works. Well, that's a big undertaking, isn't it? Critical theory aims to dig beneath the surface of social life and uncover the assumptions that keep human beings from a full and true understanding of how the world works. Well, where are the critical theory uh, components uh, targeting uh, their uh, attempt at deconstruction and digging beneath and reexamining the assumptions that keep human beings from full, true understanding of how the world works? Well, they're engaging in every old-fashioned, uh, modernistic worldviews that would basically comport with a biblical concept of human existence. Uh, some of the fundamental terms that you will hear among those who are critical theorists in their attempts at deconstruction, at destroying our normative, institutional, traditional values and worldviews would be uh, patriarchal oppression, patriarchal oppression. Uh, the idea that anything that's governed by and led up by men has to be wrong, has to be bad, has to be changed. You will hear that virtually everywhere in all circles where a socialist worldview is in control. Now, if you hold to a biblical worldview, here is where you are intuitively struggling. Watch this now. If you hold to a biblical worldview, where you are intuitively struggling is that a biblical worldview holds to a righteous patriarchal model of social domestic uh, rule. A righteous patriarchal model of social domestic rule. And not only does the Bible hold to a righteous patriarchal model of social and domestic rule, social meaning society, domestic meaning family, is that the Bible defines and determines what human beings are, who human beings are, and how they are called to function in this world as human beings with a moral and ethical framework. Now, if in fact within the framework of a critical theory system that one of the 
most problematic components or institutions that exist is a patriarchal institution, then what is that saying about a biblical worldview? Because you know when you read your Bible, God clearly lays out humanity as having its origins in a male person called Adam. And then in collection with the female person called Eve, the two combined bring the fullness of humanity into the world. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And then in the next verse, he gives them their mandate for uh, dominion over the world, for being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth and replenishing it with their collaboration with the true and the living God being his image bearers. What I've done right there is giving you a biblical model and definition of manhood, biblical model of a definition of manhood, including the woman on a ontological level, is that we are created in God's image and we bear attributes of God. These are called communicable attributes by which we reflect God. We reflect God in terms of authority. We reflect, we reflect God in terms of righteousness. We reflect God in terms of morals and ethics. We reflect God in terms of holding to uh, proper and good ideas of good and evil. We reflect God in terms of justice and uh, and mercy. We reflect God in these characteristics and attributes because that is what we are called to do in our social uh, constructs and in our domestic uh, settings. Now, if in fact the socialist system of critical theory is going to attack and deconstruct and tear down the patriarchy, what are they te- tearing down but a biblical worldview? What are they tearing down but a view that God created man first, then the woman, and that the correlation between the two is a a complementarian relationship by which the man and woman cooperate to honor God in a submission subordination relationship by which we would advance God's glory in the world. And this is why in the patriarchal uh, critical theory uh, deconstructionist model. Marriage is despised, at least marriage on the part of men and women, because they view marriage as a system of oppression and slavery. Would that not be true? So if you are viewing uh, the fundamental framework for which you and I are brought into this world, largely by a mother or a father, and you say that that mother is uh, a slave simply because she's married to a man, and that that man is exercising an, an oppressive patriarchal uh, existence over her, then what you are basically doing is militating against biblical truth. You are opposing the original design, and you are suggesting that there is a better way of, uh, of human government than to operate out of a biblical patriarchal model. And you guys need to know that this is what's going on in your schools. And this is why when your kids come out of college, they have absolutely no desire to adopt a biblical framework of existence and relationship. And not only are they, uh, you know, vociferously attacking the patriarchal model, but then they turn everything else into colonies. You've heard the term colonization, colonizing, and they love to use America as the whipping boy for the idea of slavery. And therefore, the idea of oppression and therefore the idea of control and within the slavery, oppression, control uh, framework and paradigm, they want to move into uh, the appeal to the emotions of men and women who are considering a socialist paradigm in terms of misogyny and and abuse of women and abuse of children. This is a deconstruction model that goes on by your critical theory people now to their credit. 
when we look at our world and begin to examine it in light of the historical facts, there is no doubt that there has been massive failure on the part of social and domestic relationships. There is no doubt that from the beginning of time up to the present hour, that there has been an abuse on the part of power against those who are under that power, uh, even to the degree of what we would call child abuse and child sexual molestation and pederasty and, and pedophilia and all sorts of things. But in that same category of pederasty and pedophilia, which at present the socialists would say is bad only at present only at present the the link between the pederasty and pedophilia is also the connection with homosexuality and lesbianism as the bible lays it out in leviticus 18 through 20 and what is my point that where we have a society where men and women have abandoned the biblical roles of the qualitative nature of human makeup where the quality of human makeup is not righteousness and justice and mercy based upon God's law, then you will have an oppressive patriarchy. And I've said it before, if you just remove men from the patriarchal model of control and you implement women so that you have a matriarchal model of control, well, you're just replacing genders. You're not replacing qualities. There's no qualitative difference between a man and a woman. If men can be bad in this matriarchal model, then uh, patriarchal model, then women can be bad also in their matriarchal model. Would you agree? So biblically, what we say concerning humanity, the problem with humanity is not patriarchy or matriarchy. The problem with man mankind is sin. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. So the Bible does its own kind of deconstruction of human behavior and history, et cetera, and institutions as well. And what the Bible says is our problem is not that we need to get rid of men. Our problem is not that we need to get rid of women. Our problem is not that we need to get rid of families. That's not the way to do it. Because what we're going to have to say to the socialists and to the Marxists and to the communists who really, you know, is the ultimate end of a socialist uh, experimentation. What we're going to have to say to them, if you get rid of patriarchy, if you get rid of family, if you get rid of the binary structures of complementary relationship between men and women by which children can grow up in a safe home, what system do you want to replace it with? That's scary. Because right now, when you look at our world operating outside of a biblical worldview, what you see is chaos. What you see is absolute chaos. What you see is an autocratic system of self-governance where everybody is defining themselves according to their own will, whim, or group of people that they want to identify with for as long as they want to identify with them. And then at some point, they'll change their identification with them to something else. It's whimsical, it's chaotic, and it's destructive. And that is really the end game of the critical theory model of examining history, examining government, examining uh, industries, examining the way human beings work. And as I stated before, he made it clear uh, critical theory is designed for the purpose of critiquing and changing society. Now, we will agree that they have critiqued and we will agree that we are in the change process. Are we not? And how do you and I deal with these continually evolving, changing systems? Do we just sit back and let them do what they want to do? Do we just throw our hands up in the air and say there's nothing uh, that we can do? 
Do we kind of circle the wagons and just wait till Jesus comes? Or do we engage the culture to try to also, in response to their deconstruction process, demonstrate where their arguments are fallacious and where their conclusions are wrong and where their solutions are horrendous? That's how you engage. It's called an apologetic approach to a biblical worldview. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. The number is one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I really do have a whole lot more to share with you, but if you're struggling with the change that's going on, if you're struggling with the evolution that's taking place, if you're struggling with a young person that you are trying to reach or deal with, and you you have some questions and some concerns, give me a call one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back. The time 550 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I've got three lines open. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I've kind of been giving you a little background on uh, on critical theory, uh, Marxist critical theory method by which, when implemented in a strategic way, first by education, then by political power. And then by economic influence, you can really begin to change society. And that's what's going on right before your eyes. Uh, historic norms, historic values, historic traditional systems of uh, of how we function and how we view the world are completely deconstructed, redefined, rearranged, um, and in many ways just kind of thrown out as uh, pariahs and uh, uh, the basic uh, nemesis problem that that constitutes um, our past world historically. Uh, some of the some of the real challenges, however, that uh, the believer is going to have to deal with in terms of how to engage a postmodernist, a relativist, uh, a, a, a Marxist socialist, because that's what Bernie Ward is. And that's what the liberals are morphing into, at least the ones that don't have a um, a total dependence upon the capitalist advantages that comes uh, in terms of their 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 being in positions of power. Neocons and neoliberals are not giving up their positions of power, so they're not going to ever totally morph into this sort of idyllic uh, world of uh, uh, social, um, you know, socialism. They're not going to do that. So they're going to be battling all the time and largely. One of the real issues that they are scratching their heads around is how is it that Donald Trump was able to actually acquire, ascertain the presidency uh, of the United States with uh, as bad and uh, and and careless and as problematic as his personality is and his own uh, his own worldviews. They're wondering how he won. And they're wondering, is he going to win again? Is Donald Trump, who really is a sort of an advocate for a kind of what I would call soft conservatism, is he adequate as a spearhead to maintain a quasi conservative trajectory on the part of Americans who are Republicans or conservatives? And, 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 and I would say, yeah, at least for the next four years. I would be surprised if Bernie Sanders wins. If he wins, then uh, you can expect the pendulum of change to swing radically. If he loses and and, uh, and Trump stays in another four years, then we will see a kind of um, a balancing of the pendulum, if you will, in terms of political uh, legislative uh, manifestations or outcomes. 
But once President Trump is out of office, office, if he makes it the next four years, then uh, whoever comes in, if they're not uh, a conservative, if they are a liberal, if they are a socialist, the next level of critical theory uh, objective, critical theory paradigm is going to be a massive shift away from all of the rest of the norms of traditional uh, ideas that you and I presently hold to because – if you have a president that can by uh, by executive order and if you have an administration and then you also have a house of of uh, of majority who are holding towards a socialist slant, that's when you can become concerned that some of the people who hold to a biblical worldview, a monotheistic worldview, a biblical worldview will begin to come under more pressure, more persecution, more consequential uh, pushback on the part of uh, the government because it will not tolerate people who will reject a relativistic worldview that holds to a kind of socialist Marxist philosophy. It won't tolerate the Bible having any kind of authoritative sway in our culture on a practical, moral, ethical, and certainly not on a political and social level. And so we will be entering into a Armageddon type of uh, cosmic world conflict. Be sure of that. That's in the next four years. I've got three lines open. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I'm talking to Christians who may not understand what's going on in your world and don't know how to relate it in a biblical way. I'll give you I'll be giving you some verses over in the second hour around where we are with this. But I'm just trying to help you understand what you need to start working through in order to be able to deal with the world that you are in. Three lines open. One, triple eight, three, six, seven, five, three, two, nine. Let's go to line one and talk with Ken in San Jose. Ken, what is your question, comment or observation, sir? Okay. well, my comment is or observation is that I um, I have sort of a inside view of this because I grew up as a Christian, kind of a strong Christian home, and then there was, you know, parental problems, near divorce, and this side of things. So I turned the other way in college. But the thing that brought me back from, you know, the the kind of deconstruction thing you're talking about, quasi-Marxist stuff, was a couple things. First, I remember enough of my b- biblical heritage to know that when I saw the evil accumulating, like, for instance, the enormous uh, destruction wrought by fascism, especially communism like uh, like Pol Pot in Cambodia and so forth. I saw that thing happen. I knew that the Bible predicted great evil at the end of the age, so maybe there was something to it. But the other thing was science. You know, one, one reason I turned away, as it seemed like, turned away from Christianity, was it seemed like, you know, the theory of evolution was uh, had defeated, you know, the, the model in Genesis. Right. And uh, there's scientific evidence uh, promoting that, but then now it's turned out more and more. The ironic thing is now it's turned out more and more that because life is so complex, even Darwin himself warned of this. He said that if it, um, if um, for instance, an organ in the body like the eye turned out to be so incredibly complex that it could not possibly have evolved without irreducible complexity, that then the, the theory would fall. And so this, not only the eye, but the cellular theory and, and DNA and everything that's taken been discovered in, in the 20th and 21st centuries have, have shown that Life is so complex that the origin had to be, cannot possibly have been, you know, the chance collision of particles or mutation or, or um, the, the survival of the fittest as the, um, the, um, the evolutionary theory um, posits. So therefore, that helped me turn away from it and realize that the original view was correct, that uh, 
that, and therefore everything else following from that from that origin point of view. Uh, if, if God exists, then you have to consider the Bible, and you can't uh, go for the deconstruction critical model that you were just talking about. Right now, what's interesting about what you're talking about, Ken, is the ability for a, a biblical worldview to maintain some influence on your life before you ran out there. And this is what I actually teach parents to as to why they should not compromise in teaching their kids the Word of God accurately and comprehensively, because you sow into the children a discernment mechanism that's intuitive, not necessarily cognitive, intuitive. When you teach your children the Word of God and you teach it soundly, you sow into them a discernment mechanism that's intuitive. It's not cognitive. In the cognitive sphere of our ability to rationalize and think things through, we can hold a lot of thoughts in our head, a lot of ideas, a lot of theories, and they can operate either in a kind of coherent fashion or they can operate in a major cognitive dissonance. But deep down inside, what the Word of God does is it creates a mechanism of intuitive discernment that causes it to be hard for a person to then begin to buy into a man-centered humanistic model like Marxism or socialism uh, as you have recognized it. For you, what you saw... Uh, was the the discernment mechanism of the Word of God that gave you a prescient. And the prescient was the ability to see the outcome of a soft socialist model uh, evidenced by the history of Pol Pot, Pol, Pol, Pol and, uh, and, and, and Hitler and Mussolini and all the others, uh, Stalin, holding to a model of communism that basically was horrendous in terms of its manifestations. You saw that. A lot of us saw that. That's, that's called discernment. The proverb says... He, a prudent man, can see the evil afar off, and then he hides himself. He avoids running into that calamity. God's grace gave you the ability to do that. What I'm looking at today, and one of the reasons I'm having a conversation uh, with, with us today, is whether or not people understand how close the uh, Marxist philosophy uh, is to um, our society in terms of not just looking back 50 years ago or 60, 70, in this case, 80 or 90 years ago with Lenin and with Stalin and with uh, Mussolini uh, and uh, almost, yeah, 80 years ago with even Hitler uh, is it's, it, it's right up on us and it's prevailing all around the world on a sociological level, uh, on an educational level. And it's really trying to make its way into the doors on a political level because the goal of a Marxist theory is to overthrow the government so that it can take power and force upon society the fascist systems that you're talking about. But before it gets there, it has to change the society. And when you see the fabric of society changing when you see the behavior of human beings and you see the 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 ideas of young people in terms of this broader expanse of identity markers uh distinguished from each other taking on these these autonomous terms you are seeing the uh outcome of a critical theory process morphing into Hegel's dialectical process, and that is a compromise, a a synthesis of a humanistic worldview now in transition to become the norm. This is where you and I are today. And you made a little mention of uh, uh, some of the biblical concepts of uh, God's judgments on our society, evidenced by history. Uh, there are measures of absolute truth around that, Ken, to be quite frank with you, even though I would I would I would warn men and women about, you know, uh, over 
over application of biblical truth in the area of history in terms of trying to assign what those judgments are. The Bible is very clear. The wages of sin is death. But the Bible is also clear as I am actually doing a series in the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ around the seven seals and seven trumpets and seven vials. And we are certainly experiencing within the trajectory of human history, the unfolding of the seals and then the manifestation or sounding of the trumpets. And it can be fairly adduced from a, uh, a sound understanding of the relationship between the seals and the trumpets that we are operating presently in the sixth seal, sixth trumpet, sixth seal on our way to the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet. Nothing else is left to manifest but the pouring out of the vowed judgments, the bold judgments. So your intuition around these great calamities that have occurred a hundred years ago and and a little less than a hundred years ago only indicates that the next outbreak of calamities that hits our world will be definitely uh, apocalyptic in its manifestation. That is to say, plagues and judgments are already starting to happen as a norm. You already know this. I already know this as well. Shifts in our ecological structure, the, the normalcy patterns of ecology are all changing. The book of Revelation is unfolding these realities before our faces, but we're distracted by a social theater that is overwhelmingly propagandizing people so that they cannot see the big picture of God's judgments creeping upon us, setting us up for the pouring out of the vile judgments in the seventh trumpet. Uh, that's where we are at present, and that's why it's important for us to know uh, what we are looking at and why we are going through these changes. Listen, thank you for the call. Um, all of our lines are open, one 367 All of the lines are open, one 367 When I come back, I'm going to talk to you about this pseudo-identity uh, syndrome and what are the fundamental components that makes up this false identity system that people are collapsing into on the Monday edition of Lifeline. The number again is one 367 one 367 I'll be right back. 